Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, Paul Wells. How are you? Paul Wells, writer for McLean's, a former Twitter pundit, occasional debate moderator. Mordecai Richler loved this guy. What's your fucking problem, listener? Welcome back, Paul, to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. It's always a pleasure. Paul, you are not hosting a debate this year. Yeah. And word on the hill is that you are furious about it. Please go easy today. Uh, also on today's show, guess who's back? Back again. We is back. Tell a friend. And the rebel still slaps. That joke will make sense before we're done today. Glad to have you, Paul. Uh, it's good to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Robert McKinnon, Wes Bailey, Nolan Evans, Jeremy Park, Haley Groves, Ben Verboom, Ashley Oliver, and Chris Fenn. Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm from Ottawa, and I work in cloud platform sales. I support Canada Land because not only is it a great source for information and analysis about all things Canada from a critical and diverse set of perspectives, but most importantly, although you might not always agree with some of the takes of Jesse and his guests, ideas are challenged and debated in the spirit of understanding and a common set of values rather than just pure confrontation and mindless partisanship. 
A new week, potentially the last before the official campaign begins. The federal election is looming on the horizon. Get ready to ride the pandemic election roller coaster because things are about to kick off. Paul, election fever is in the air. Thank God. Yeah, it's it's this whole country is in the grip of election fever. I mean, I for one have lost my taste uh, and smell, and uh, I've got election fever so bad I've got to be intubated. Are you as excited for this? Everyone's excited for this election. Uh, honestly, it's why guys like me got into journalism. You're just as cynical as you can possibly be, and then they ring the bell, and you have this Pavlovian response that, you know, everything's up in air. It's not even us who get to decide what happens. They're going to actually let the fucking voters pick the next government, and we just have to watch and take notes. Um, this is my ninth, eighth, I don't know, yeah. uh, federal election, and it's I still get a big kick out of it. Well, I can see why. I mean, what a thriving democratic process. What a great democracy we have in this country. What? Oh, boy. I mean, everyone is so fired up. Everyone is so inspired by these leaders. Everyone's so excited to go to the polls and check out the, deba- the debates, Paul. I mean, what? Just a meeting of the minds, just to see these oh, titans man. clash, you know? What, what, a, what a set of well-formed ideas that we will have to choose from. You've moderated a federal leaders' debates in the past. I think you did a splendid job. Thank you. What are you looking forward to? Like, I mean, I'm sure everyone is just going to be glued to these debates. What are you expecting? <laughs> so, first things first. Elections don't ever turn out the way people expect it. The reason I genuinely like elections is that they are always surprising. The last one turned around. The extent to which the opposition leader was a Canadian citizen and the number of times the incumbent prime minister had blackfaced during his 20s for social occasions. Yeah. And the results are never what we expect, perhaps most spectacularly in 2015 when the Liberals went from third place, like a solid extended run in third place in the polls to taking power. So that's a blast. I do have a special interest in the debates. McLean's was one of a few organizations that organized kind of rebel upstart debates in 2015, simply because the Conservatives and the New Democrats were hoping for as many debates as possible so they could trip up Justin Trudeau. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. And then we tried to repeat the experience in 2019, but the Prime Minister didn't show up. So I had the early fake sham debate with every party leader who wasn't Justin Trudeau. That was really weird. That was so weird. Yeah, frankly, it was deeply unpleasant, the whole experience. But we tried to capture lightning in a bottle a second time. I had a strong suspicion the prime minister would see no interest in showing up. Uh, First of all, because he was the incumbent. He was defensive instead of playing offense. Secondly, because I personally had been very critical of him throughout whatever that year's scandal was, SNC-Lavalin. And you think it's because Trudeau was scared of you? You think that's why he didn't show up? No, but he was not in a mood to do me any favors. And he had... A general, although not absolute rule, that he was only going to do the uh, officially sanctioned debate commission debates. When I say not absolute, you'll notice that then, as again, apparently this year, he and everyone else was super eager to do the TVA debate because TVA is the highest ratings in Quebec. And so whatever bogus hopped up principle says that you could only do one debate and it's only the one set up by some sort of extremely shaky government quasi board function thing. That principle goes wheeling out the window when you got a shot at high ratings in a province with a lot of seats up for grabs. Do you think there's a point in having these debates? What I liked about 2015 was precisely what the liberals didn't like and what a lot of observers didn't like, which was the anarchy of the thing. And the fact that it was fundamentally a political decision for each leader to decide which debates to participate in and which ones not to participate in. What I don't like about the debate commission process, which fulfills a liberal campaign 
commitment and is now seen in English Canada, once again, as the only way you can have a debate, is that the Debate Commission is a slow-moving beast. It has a hell of a lot of uh, rules that it has made up for uh, who gets in a debate and who doesn't. It will tend to produce a boring, predictable debate in which there are so many leaders on the stage that almost no one gets much chance to say much. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to run out the clock. What I liked in 2015 was you had no real idea what kind of debate Rudyard Griffiths was going to cook up, what kind of debate Paul Wells was going to cook up. And one of the big disappointments in 2019 was the only people who came up with debate proposals were the same people who'd had debates in 2015. Like, where are the universities? Where are the trade associations, the labor unions, the NGOs, the pressure groups saying, look, we care more about international development than anyone else in Canada. We've got hard questions and we expect your leaders to have to answer that. So we've rented a hall and they can show up or not, but you'll, you'll notice them not showing up. I, I, like, I don't understand why there's not a multiplicity of proposals for debates rather than everyone sort of tugging their forelock and saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full to a good faith, but inevitably flawed commissions process. Why? Because we're completely sucked of any energy or interest. I mean, if my sarcasm was not apparent earlier, <laughs> uh, nobody is engaged in this. Like, O'Toole doesn't look like a guy who thinks he has a chance in hell. People are about as excited to uh, pile into, like, crowded auditoriums to hear a debate as, and, and to bars to watch the debate as they are to get root canal surgery. And it's basically being shrugged off as a fait accompli by everybody from the press to the... I mean, I don't want to harsh your buzz. Like, your giddy, childlike innocence as a journalist. Wow, we're going to the polls. It's wonderful. You may be alone in that. Yeah. When I say I'm excited, have you seen that amazing Joan Didion documentary where, where she talks about being in San Francisco in the 60s and seeing, like, a seven-year-old child doing drugs because their parents were druggies? And, and the interviewer asked Joan Didion, what the hell was that like, seeing the seven-year-old kid doing drugs? And Joan Didion says, I have to tell you, it was gold. Uh, because that's Joan Didion admitting she's a journalist, right? Uh, yeah. Like at some level, uh, you know, as has famously been said, it's an amoral, if not an immoral craft, right? You live for the days when there's a car crash. And similarly... Where, where are you going with this? That, well, I agree. That is, that's good shit. Yeah. How are you going to somehow... I'm, I'm actually, I'm watching a master at work here. How are you going to get from there to where you're going next? I'm just going to stand back and let you get there. I'm saying, I don't need this to be a good election. I just need it to be an election. I just need a fix. Okay. And, and in a lot of ways, this isn't a good election, including the fact that this has not been said enough. It can never be said enough. The only reason we're having an election in September is that the prime minister would like to have more liberals sitting behind him in the House of Commons. He's got a law that says there shouldn't be an election in September. He's got his own rhetoric and his own discourse when Stephen Harper called a, a, an opportunistic election in 2008. It's a hypocritical opportunistic election in which a badly dented prime minister will face less than ideal interlocutors and opponents. <laughs> and, you know, but what the hell? At the end of it, everyone votes. We have a new government. And since I can't get the really good shit this year, since I can't get Chrétien versus Stockwell Day or Lucien Bouchard stomping across the landscape like back when dinosaurs ruled the earth, I'll take this. <laughs> to Paul Wells, that is a kid, a seven-year-old doing drugs in the year 2021. You'll take what you can get. Uh, a, ring, a ringing endorsement. I think you've won everyone over. No, but you know what? I'll take one thing from this, which is that, like, shit does happen. Like, everyone thought that 
Trudeau was going to shit his pants in the first round of debates way back when. Yep. Mulcair with a creepy smile and getting outflanked on the left. Harper going full bigot. There were thrills and chills. Shit can happen. Things can change. You know, it's like lotto. You got to be in it to win. Who knows what might happen? Nothing's going to happen. But who knows what might happen? But by way of segue, Paul, are the leaders' debates even worth it anymore now that Craig Kilberger has lost his post on the debate commission. <laughs> Your producer sent me some required reading for this thing. And so I was going through a procurement ombudsman report. God save me. Yeah. And I learned that Craig Kilberger got $17,000 to sit on that debate commission. It never occurred to me that those were not volunteer positions. Um, but I guess if you can figure out a way to get paid, get paid. That's probably good advice. And Craig Kilberger figured out how to get paid <laughs> for making up Rules on, on a debate commission. Shine on Crazy Diamond. Like, good for him. <laughs> oh, he he knows how to do this. Um, okay, so to get people up to speed on what we're talking about here, We Charity is back in the news. It's back in some news. And the story, the stakes are really low, but that kind of makes this, like that's sort of why this is interesting. The uh, procurement ombudsman, I can tell people are fascinated already. The procurement ombudsman did a one-year investigation of six different little contracts, like small, small potatoes. It all amounts to $131,000 that we got from the government. But what it really peels back, if you're interested in like how government works and how government pays its buddies, before we get to this big youth services grant that brought We Charity crashing down in Canada, you see this pattern and the, the ombudsman found a fair amount of wrongdoing here. But like I got really into the details here. So one of it is just this egregious thing that he's like on this commission getting paid. And it was, you know, like he got appointed this and his relationship with Trudeau probably has something to do with that. But then you get into like a couple of these contracts where if We Charity was getting $25,000, it would have to be opened up to open bidding. So what did the bids come in at? $24,990 was one of the bids, $10 shy of where other charities would have a crack at these government contracts. And then somebody at WE was like, we're still leaving $10 on the table there. So the next one comes in at $24,996. So they're maxing out the opportunity. And there's evidence of really rigging the process. Uh, this is the ombudsman's finding that like WE was basically told, we're going to be requesting proposals. Here's what you need to know to get it. Granting WE the proposal, but then figuring out the cost afterwards and bumping up the cost afterwards. Really just a corrupt procurement process. Uh, so that's the story. What I find interesting in our purview here, talking about what's in the media, is where these stories appeared. And Paul, you can read about this in Post Media newspapers. You can read about this in the Post Millennial. You can read about this in the Western Standard. But as we record, this might change, but as we record, you won't find it in the Toronto Star. You won't find it in the Globe and Mail. You won't find it in the CBC. And the reason why those right-wing and right-leaning news sources jumped on this is that this is a story that can be weaponized against Trudeau. Paul, I got to say, like, leave it to the Canadian media to take what I think is maybe the most fascinating story from this country in years and just reduce it to its most piddly procedural bit of partisan bullshit. Way to miss the point, like not knowing a jaw dropper of a story when it bites you in the ass repeatedly. And that's what we're left with is like, oh, should they have registered as lobbyists is the focus of Canadian media, whereas I see something of epic sweep. I should add, you're not going to read this in McLean's, and this latest iteration of it, this procurement ombudsman report, strikes me as adding useful color and, it, and useful sort of cultural context 
more than a terrifying smoking gun kind of thing. The dollar values are not huge. The procurement ombudsman says in a lot of cases, a lot of rules were followed. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> there's, there's 20 or 30, 20 or 30, 20 or 30 yeah, rules they, they need to follow. And they followed 16 or 18 of them. You know? Yeah. Um, you got me credit where it's due. It's not a question of a smoking gun. Sometimes I feel like I'm just in a wild disconnect. Like, Paul, to me, this is like, imagine if Greta Thunberg took a weird turn and went corporate and grew up to be this multimillionaire who partners yeah. up with Shell Oil and is like in league with the Clintons and the biggest celebrities in the world and has like, I don't know, a less appealing big sister who helps her monetize her crusade. And then it all comes crashing down. And I'm saying this, and I have some self-interest here because we're just launching a show called The White Saviors where we're like, fuck this, let's start from scratch and tell this story in the cinematic broad lens that I think it deserves. And, yeah. and and that show we're just launching now because I don't like just uh, from everybody ignoring it to everybody just copiously reporting on every little bit of ephemera about it to then people being like, oh, I'm tired of this now because it's become procedural nonsense. Like we, we've lost the plot here and we're going to start again and spool out that plot. I think that's an excellent enterprise. Um, the procurement ombudsman, I'm just tickled that there's a procurement ombudsman. The procurement ombudsman report <laughs> is... Uh, what I call a rope line story. It, it, it yeah. shows the rest of us who, who don't get past the bouncers, what goes on behind the rope line. And one of the most poignant moments in the we testimony was this guy who runs a charity that provides youth services, who knows Katie Telford, who thought he was connected, who when the word went out that they were going to be providing this honorariums for volunteers program, he hustled and came together with the beginnings of a process and called in and said, look, you know, I think I can really get a lot done with this. And he couldn't get his calls returned. And similarly, yeah. what, what we see here is if you think a bidding process is a bidding process, here's a glimpse of what really happens, which is that public servants call up we and say, look, we're going to do this. We're wondering how much we think uh, we should set the budgeting at. How much do you think it'll cost you to deliver it? And I, like, you know, everyone in Canada who didn't get that call must be going, hmm, that's the damnedest thing, you know? Well, you said a mouthful, and that's a huge part of this that's gotten lost, is that there actually are a lot of charities out there that, first of all, they're the ones who actually like have played a big role in breaking the We Charity scandal because they were the ones who spoke up and said something is happening that is not right here. And, you know, I don't mean to minimize the cronyism aspect of this because, as you say, that kind of relationship between We Charity behind the line, and we know that this happens all the time, but the way that the Prime Minister's buddies get that kind of treatment, who gets shut out of that deal, and now we know that money was moved in the opposite direction as well at that same time, that We Charity was paying Trudeau's family significant sums of money while they were receiving those kinds of benefits from the government. So that should make everybody throw up in their mouth a little bit. So, tiny anecdote. At the end of 2018, uh, when Bill Morneau was the finance minister and had just a shitty summer over uh, changing tax treatments for small businesses that the Conservatives used to club him over the head with, someone in his office decided that maybe what could humanize Bill Morneau was to have Paul Wells follow him around for a day and write a feature about what a swell guy Bill Morneau was. But we spent the first half of the day at WE, hanging out with Craig and Mark Kielberger, taking a Q&A from the students. And I was bemused at the time and increasingly since then that an office full of, you know, political professionals thought that the best way to show what the finance minister does for Canadians is to show him spending half a day hanging out at the WE charity. What did you make of it? What were your impressions? 
I just thought there are people who think that the Kielbergers are Canadian youth and are the energy of the future and are optimism and hope. Yeah. And I didn't particularly share that perspective, but the finance minister could have spent the morning changing a tire. I'd have followed it and written it and taken notes, you know, but it just struck me as an odd choice, you know. We're speaking in vague terms, and this is another part that I feel hasn't been adequately explored. Is just like what you probably saw there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like, yes, these 40-year-old men who are like these youth emissaries, but more, more than that, this merging of self-help aphorisms and the youth have the power and can do it, you can change the world, shy on consequence or substance, and completely sapping the idea of international development from politics, or anger, you know? If you look at Craig Kilberger when he was 12, he was angry about child labor and child slavery. But I find fascinating the kind of Oprahfication of uh, world saviorism, white saviorism. Like, like, there's just so much to explore in this. There's so much to get into that really tells us a story about like what this, not now, because things have shifted and a lot of these things don't play anymore. But the idea that like you could get a bunch of suburban kids to be like, we're gonna go and save Africa by liking a Facebook page is a very strange moment, and I think a very Canadian movement, as, they, as they've always called it. Anyhow, I, I could go on and on, but I think people should just go subscribe to the White Saviors, because uh, we, we have a hell of a story to tell. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Paul Wells, veteran of shortcuts as you are, you know that when things go overlooked by the media, it is our... Pleasure, nay, our responsibility, our duty to duly note them. What do you have for us today? A cautionary tale from the New York Times. Uh, last week, uh, William Broad, their Pulitzer-winning science reporter, wrote about 
a previous New York Times Pulitzer winning science reporter, a guy named William Lawrence, who after World War II covered up the devastating radiation effect of the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs because the War Department wanted them to, because the War Department wanted to uh, spread the idea that uh, atomic bombs were nice weapons, that, did, that uh, sure, they had a lot of um, explosive power, but they didn't kill anyone in nasty ways. And it uh, turns out this guy, Bill Lawrence, while he was reporting all this stuff for the Times, was on the uh, payroll of the War Department. <laughs> was, Ooh. Uh, Ooh. A serial defiler of journalistic mores is what uh, this generation of Times reporters calls uh, Atomic Bill Lawrence. But there's also a, a more inspiring uh, a, a companion piece, which is the story of a black reporter named Charles Loeb, who mostly uh, wrote for what, what at the time were called race papers, uh, a network of regional black newspapers. Uh, mm -hmm. And he accurately covered the uh, radiation effects of these terrible weapons. And he ensured that any paper he wrote for was going to have the most accurate possible version of what was going on. And the story about this really heroic reporter, Charles Loeb, suggests that because he'd grown up at the margins of society, he had a lot more sympathy for the uh, Japanese victims of American uh, weapons, and he wanted to make sure that their story was told right. These two stories about Atomic Bill Lawrence, who was on the take, and about Charles Loeb, who told the story right, just always remind me to um, try and do right by my story rather than by some team that I'm theoretically supposed to be cheerleading for. Yeah, that's fascinating, and a fascinating contrast, too. Like, that's uh, that's got narrative juice. I, I'd watch that movie. Duly noted. I have one. Okay. Uh, just a little Associated Press story. Uh, Facebook said that it removed hundreds of accounts linked to a mysterious advertising agency out of Russia that was paying social media influencers to talk shit about AstraZeneca and Pfizer. It was like introducing misinformation and, and vaccine hesitancy, specifically against those two vaccines, Pfizer and AstraZeneca. I remember, you know, we've covered how the, the messaging around AstraZeneca, should you take it, shouldn't you, and, and the reporting, and, like, I was critical of, of the press for really weird mixed messages and hyper-focus on weird edge cases and really, I think, just kind of putting a lot of stink on a vaccine that is still a pretty effective miracle. But now it's there's actually some purposeful plotting here. 65 Facebook accounts, 243 Instagram accounts traced back to... How do you pronounce this? Faz, Fazze, F-A-Z-Z-E, hmm. this Russian firm. And we don't know, the AP doesn't know who their client was. So that's really scary fuckery. Really scary. Yeah, I talked to a European expert in Russian disinformation at one time. And what he said was, in a lot of these cases, the Russians don't even really have a champion. They don't really even have a cause that they're advancing. All they want to do is get Westerners arguing among themselves. They want to just essentially reduce unit cohesion in the enemy. And this is an example of that. Duly noted. Paul, the last thing I want to talk with you about is a story involving a number of people who I don't want to have dinner with. Huh. Uh, the, uh, I've, had dinner with, I, I've had dinner with all of these people. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scott Gilmore. What do we call Scott Gilmore? A, a journalist? A uh, politician's husband? What, 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 what do we call Scott Gilmore? McLean's contributing editor. McLean's contributing editor, Scott Gilmore, and family member to the, to the Trudeau government, um, you know, by marriage. He has won 
a lawsuit uh, that he that was filed against him. Uh, the, the rebel came after Scott Gilmore for uh, defamation, and uh, Scott Gilmore succeeded in having the case thrown out as a slap suit, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. That's when if if you, if somebody you think is just trying to silence you, and they don't really have a legitimate defamation claim against you, you can go to the court early in the process and say, Judge. This guy, he's just trying to get me to shut up. Can, can we just save everybody a bunch of time? And that's what the judge said. It still takes a lot of time. And furthermore, the rebel, Ezra Levance, the rebel, uh, is, uh, is going to have to pay Scott Gilmore about $82,000. I think that uh, the rebel is going to appeal this, but that's, that's how this worked out. Here's the background. Wow. Here we go. Last summer, August 13th, 2020, Justin Ling, did I mention people I don't want to have dinner? I, I, Justin's just fine. I, I, would, I, would, I would get takeout. Which, uh, Justin Ling, a reporter with the National Post, uh, wrote an opinion piece called Threats to Trudeau and His Cabinet Up 30%, Someone's Going to Get Killed. This is about how the heightened political messaging out there is resulting in a lot of misogyny and death threats, and there was an attempt on Justin Trudeau, and uh, Justin Ling did not mention the rebel in this piece. But Scott Gilmore, who, uh, you know, again, has a personal interest via his marriage in the safety, and this is a quite legitimate one, he tweeted this story, and in his tweets, he said that the responsibility lies at the feet of Conservative Party leadership who've tolerated and even welcomed the constant accusations of treason. You know, you hear that, treason. Justin Trudeau's guilty of treason. Hang Justin Trudeau, people say. And as Scott Gilmore continues, the violent language from outlets like rebel media. Okay? They won't step up and stop it. They are either too scared or too complicit to do the right thing. He said a bunch of other things. But then he said, when someone is inevitably killed, the blood is on them. And I guess there's some question as to whether them refers to the Conservative Party of Canada or blood is on the hands of the rebel. What did Scott Gilmore mean there exactly? You could read it any number of ways. That is what got uh, Scott Gilmore sued for defamation. And, you know, I'm getting into this because, like, it's interesting. You know, you like to see uh, Ezra Levant lose a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting, the ruling. Did you read this ruling? I did. A really robust reading of the slap provisions in Ontario libel law, which are relatively recent. I'm not, I'm not sure who introduced them, but basically it's, the notion is, look, when people are arguing over politics, uh, they get their elbows up, they uh, engage in approximations, and a lot of the time that's a good thing that's deserving of protection. And it shouldn't be a narrow definition of libel and defamation, and it shouldn't be someone who doesn't like being attacked in a public debate shouldn't be able to shut down the attacker through a narrow reading of the libel laws. I think that this ruling probably weakens Ezra Levant's hand in future libel suits because basically the test that the judge applied was, is he making less money? Does he have fewer subscribers? Is his fundraising constant, constant, tiresome fundraising effort damaged by one tweet from Scott Gilmore? And the judge said, on the face of it, no. According to the testimony of folks at Rebel, no. So it was just um, the rough and tumble of robust debate, the sort of stuff that Ezra claims himself when he gets sued by other people. So, well, you know, we'll just have a little fun here, you know. Well, that, yeah. That, you know, that's what the judge said was Scott Gilmore's defense. I think Scott's tweet was, you know, I think running Rebel News is essentially a sad existence. Uh, and I am not planning to have dinner with Ezra again. But I thought Scott's tweet was a, was, was, was a little loose and a little kind of hand wavy. Well... There are people I don't like, and so someone's going to die. But I really don't like the libel laws being 
used to get people to stop saying stuff on Twitter when, you know, ideally what should get people to stop saying nasty stuff on Twitter is just to appeal to their better nature. Yeah, people are going to say nasty stuff on Twitter and it's not against the law, you know, yeah, like there's that too. Ex exactly. And um, I note that the judge awarded costs to Scott, who is an old friend and will always be a good friend. And the language of the ruling suggests that the reason that Scott didn't get about $30,000 of the costs that he claimed was the judge was grandly unimpressed with this whole thing. He's like, what are you people doing? Uh, you know, so, <laughs> Take your Twitter bullshit somewhere else. Yeah, if nothing else, file a proper cost claim or you're not going to yeah. get all the money, you know? And I, and I think, note to self, if I do get hauled into court, I got to remember, my business is not with the antagonist across the way whom I dislike. My business is with the judge and I had better do right by the judge. Well, the judge really did issue a, ah, fuck both of you, kind of a ruling. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I'll, I'll read from it. I'm prepared to conclude Rebel News has failed to show that there is a public interest in continuing this action that is not outweighed by the need to protect Scott Gilmore's ill-advised freedom of expression. It's a bit of a weird wording. I think that the judge didn't mean to say that freedom of expression is itself ill-advised, but that yeah, Scott Gilmer's said, application. Yeah, he should have said an ill-advised <laughs> exercise of his of his freedom of expression or something. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't really care if the judge likes Scott Gilmer's tweet or not, but the judge did go out of his way to say, I don't like your tweet. And, and yeah, it was, it was a pretty dumb tweet. Um, the wider context here is that Ezra's been losing these suits. We reported on how, for a guy who's like, hey, we live in freedom of speech, we exist within freedom of uh, speech and freedom of expression, and we're going to fight for it. He has launched, and the Rebel has launched, more lawsuits against journalists than, uh, I think, uh, as far as we can tell, and we tried to f figure out if anyone has done more than him, and we couldn't, um, and he's been losing them. And I think yeah. here we need a slap sound effect. His suit against Scott Gilmore was thrown out as a slap. Rebel versus Al Jazeera, dismissed as a slap. Ezra Levant versus Demel, dismissed as a slap. The Rebel is appealing those two. He is suing, the Rebel is suing Justin Ling for some other bullshit. And Ezra threatened to sue me after I said some very unkind and true things about the Rebel. And he said, if I don't apologize, he will sue. And uh, I did not apologize. And then we did get sued by Kian Bexty. And then Kian Bexty parted ways with Ezra and launched his own little Rebel Junior enterprise. And I, I'm curious to see if, if Kian is going to pursue that action on his own. But that's sort of the wider, and I, maybe a necessary disclosure as well in talking about this. But that's like, Ezra's not having a good day. I mean, the, the, you know, you say that this is going to be bad for his case uh, in the future because it establishes uh, some things that are not going to be helpful for him. We already have a case history with Ezra where his own attorney said, don't take my client seriously. This guy's a joker. He's not for real. He's an entertainer, not a journalist. And then we now have, it's not enough in defamation law to say, like, I was defamed. You got to say, and it cost me something. The defamation, like I was damaged by this. And given that Ezra's machine is fueled by outrage and every time he perceives injury, he makes money off of that through fundraising. This most recent ruling establishes that a court has said, yeah, I'm not convinced that you're going to be able to show that you really took a hit here because this is your bread and butter. Yeah. So in a lot of cases, people who spend their lives suing or being sued probably don't care about the effects on the courts, right? There's a third party audience, often a fundraising audience that they're just trying to entertain. But the fact remains, Canada's courts are non-trivially overloaded. There are serious criminal cases getting thrown out all the time because the trials have taken too long. And, you know, there are uh, people racking up huge costs trying to survive long 
runs in front of the courts, and judges are well aware of this, painfully aware of this, are trying to figure out ways to have the justice system run more efficiently. If they get to know people who just kind of go, hey, I'm going to do a libel suit, you know, um, they're going to be grandly unimpressed with these folks. The test that they're going to apply is going to get progressively more severe. They're not going to become easier marks. And if I was in the business of cranking the libel suit wheel, I would start to worry about that. Was that maybe I should start looking for another um, way to have my fun. Paul, that's Shortcuts for today. Thank you for doing this with me. Thanks. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that people send. And our website is canadaland.com, where people can go and subscribe to the White Saviors. Uh, I think this is our best work since Thunder Bay. Check it out. Paul, where can people find you? Inklesswells at gmail.com. Not on Twitter. Inklesswells at gmail.com. You can email Paul, but do not look for his tweets. He will not be defaming you on Twitter. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton with uh, additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of our stuff, uh, click on the link in the show notes. And uh, what you can do for us right now is uh, subscribe to our new show, like it, review it, recommend it to somebody. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.